Our Saviour has said in his book, or is recorded of him, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now I may be prejudiced a little bit, but I have a feeling if somebody had come into this meeting this afternoon who had taken the idea of this is a fantastic lot of people, this emphasis upon dispensational truth, this insistence on right division, if anybody had come in to this meeting and heard the message given by our brother Dredge, I feel sure that he would have gone out chastened and possibly blessed. Don't you? And don't you agree with me, friends, that if every church and chapel in this land could tomorrow have that address, well, we think the millennium would come, wouldn't we? And it all arises out of the fact that we believe God's word to be true and we believe it needs to be rightly divided. In other words, we believe dispensational truth. If dispensational truth leads us to the foot of the Saviour and exalts him above all name and possibility, I don't think we need bow our heads in shame except for the fact that we never can in this life do it even as we would. I feel I must make that tribute. Of course, it's all coming back on me, I know, because uh, by their fruits you shall know them. See, there's the fruits, here we are. And I have a letter from America and another graceful tribute was poured. Didn't say what a clever person I was. No. When I read it, nothing about me. But he said, you know, we are grateful and we are thankful for the type of men that God has raised up to stand with you. And so I am, friends. The type of men that stand with a person in my capacity is a very good index of what sort of witness it is. Aren't we handing out bouquets this evening? Well, that's the opportunity on a meeting like this, isn't it? We get plenty of the other sort. Oh, yes. So, I felt that was the due to all those, including our brother Dredge, all those who throughout another year have stood by and very much in the background to make this witness what it is. Then there's another thing I would like you to be sure I purposely refrain from giving the slightest hint as to what my subject will be when I stand up here. For more than one reason. Because there's always a possibility that at the last minute I should change the whole thing and take something different. But I do it because I want to give no word to the speaker that he should trim his sails with regard to what I have to say. Now he might have known what I was going to say. But I believe that's an index that we allowed the Spirit of God to do some leading. For I want to speak about the Son of God. Well, that's central to the whole Word of God, isn't it? I want to leave with you this thought, that the whole purpose of the ages is focused in and brought to its issue by one person, in one capacity, not king, not priest, not prophet, but first of all and primarily a son. God is working from Genesis 1 to the last issue which is given in 1 Corinthians 15 when the end comes, that the whole of that purpose shall be undertaken and brought to its glorious issue, not in one who is a servant only, 
but one who serves as a son. I want to stress the sonship element so that when we go away, if you have no other thought in your mind, you'll have this thought. This is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased and in whom all the issues of life and death, hope and glory are found. So that it can be truly said, if you possess all things and know not the Son of God, you possess nothing. And if you're destitute of all things and you know the Son of God, you're the heir of all things. The Son of God. If we think of God's purpose as a circle and we put a mark in the very centre, that mark in the very centre indicates the position of the Son of God. That in all things he might have preeminence. You cannot preach the gospel of the grace of God without preaching the Son of God. When John wrote his gospel, toward the end of that gospel, he sums up the reason that prompted him and why he adopted a certain method. He said, many other things truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. Now there may be some who would say that uh, <clears throat> we can quite understand that in the Gospels the Son of God would be emphasised. But you will find in the Old Testament, long before he came to Bethlehem, that Son of God is envisaged. Now, it's not the custom with speakers who belong to this particular work to take a text out of the Bible and then to use that text to hang their own thoughts upon. I don't criticise the man who says firstly, secondly and thirdly that may be his method that God blesses. We usually take the book as it stands and we find we've got such a wealth in that uh, that uh, it nearly always beats us. But this evening I am going to take a text. I'm going to lift out a text because I want it to remain in your heart and mind as it has remained in mine. And it is found in Genesis 22. Now this afternoon we had a very controversial passage brought before us, the book of Jonah. And I think it was clearly vindicated that it has its rightful place in the scheme of things. Here we have another controversial passage. You could easily approach it and say, well, this belongs to a barbaric age. We cannot believe that God, as we understand him, would ever demand such a thing of Abraham. But you see, we are losing a sight of one thing. That God acting always knows the end from the beginning. It says he tempted, which doesn't mean tempt in our modern use of the word, any more than to make an attempt means anything wrong. It was to test. It was to try. It was to see whether that faith was genuine. But it did more than that. It gave us an exhibition in human terms of what it cost God to plan redemption. See, we're so thinking about the heart of Abraham being torn that we forget about the heart of God. The very word that's used in Genesis 22, thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, 
is used in Romans the 8th chapter when it says he spared not his only son. What Abraham went through was a faint shadow of what God disconceived of going through. Or there is a system of theology which teaches that God is impassible. I didn't say impossible, friends. I said impassible. And if you don't know what that means, you look up the dictionary. It actually means that God cannot suffer. Well, of course, if you ask that particular friend, well, how do you know? Well, how does he know? If you read the Bible, and you read that when God looked upon the earth, and the terrific things that were happening just before the days of the flood, he said it grieved God that he had made man, and he repented. And you tell me God has no feelings. No. Abraham caught a glimpse of this, because although he didn't know what God would do and how he would do it, he told the young men, we shall come back again. And the epistle to the Hebrews makes it very clear that he believed that God would raise him from the dead from which he'd received him originally in his birth, because he was born almost in the same way. Both Abraham and Sarah, we read, were as good as dead. But I'm not trying to justify God or his word. I want just to think of this. The text that I'm lifting out is found in this Genesis 22, where we read these words. And verse 8, And Abraham said, My son... God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Now it's those words that I think will be the covering thought that we have in mind. They went, both of them, together. If you were to say to yourself, what would have happened if Abraham had gone alone? Well, nothing. What would have happened if Isaac had gone alone? Nothing. The only thing that was demanded and which was fulfilled, that they went, both of them, together. And in the context was the burnt offering. The necessity for a lamb. Now have you noticed that before ever creation came into existence that we know, the creation we know, it was already known by God that one day he was going to be called upon not to spare his only son, that before ever Adam was created or Adam sinned, Christ was verily foreordained, a lamb without blemish and without spot. God knew the end from the beginning. He's never been taken by surprise by the fact that this world has plunged into sin and misery and that it was going to cost him his all to redeem it back again. They went, both of them, Together. Have you noticed that emphasis in the New Testament concerning our Saviour? He said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. They went, both of them, together. We are told that God delivered him up for us all. God delivered him up for us all. And we are told that our Saviour, echoing those very words, he loved the church. Now we can't say he delivered himself up, but it's the same word. They went, both of them together. 
There is a very harmful representation of the whole story that God is a rather wrathful, frowning sort of person with a long white beard and uh, very, oh, it looks very severe looking over the battlements of heaven to see the slightest deviation you make from the straight path. And all you can do is to run to one they call gentle Jesus to escape from the wrath of the Father. Oh, what a monstrous perversion! Who was it that so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son? See, the Son of God and the Father that sent him are one. They went, both of them, together. There's no divorce between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New. The one foreshadowed in type and the other fulfilled in reality. The purpose of God before creation came into existence. And so we might pursue that aspect until our time ran out. But I want now to take it a little bit more systematically while we have the opportunity. <coughs> uh, don't think that I'm pretending that this subject is going to be exhausted in the few minutes we have. That would be temerity. Just for a moment, I don't know whether any of you have got any interest whatever in uh, medieval paintings on the walls of monasteries. You say, no. Well, neither have I in one sense. But I do remember in Florence, standing looking at the original frescoes painted by Fra Angelico, they are the sweetest, the simplest pieces of beauty that I think this world has ever produced. And Fra Angelico said this, that when he came to paint the picture of the Saviour, his hand faltered and he failed. He confessed that the worst figure in the whole series was the Son of God and we should honour him for it. It's easy to predict this man and this man and the other. But who is ever going to rise to the heights to depict the Son of God? Well, I feel like that too. Oh, I could go on like 19 to the dozen when we're talking about right division and all the dispensations and the ages and whatnot. But I'm in the presence of majesty. As one has put it, majesty and misery meeting together in one person. Sometimes we better stop with our studies and bow our heads in worship than pursue merely the meaning of words and discovering of structures. But of course, they are all means to an end. And I will do my best, trusting in him to make it a living word. The first thing I would like to ask you to consider is that the Son of God appears at the beginning of the story of creation and the Son of God is there at the end, the very last to be mentioned, before the purpose of the ages is completed. Now, to find those passages, we'll have to first of all turn to the book of Proverbs. Now, I'm just trying to think what the chapter is, but I think I shall find it. Proverbs, the... 28th chapter, possibly. I hope so. Uh, 
I've slipped up over, oh, chapter 30, I'm sorry. I've slipped up over some of my notes. And some people who know my handwriting wonder I don't slip up a little bit more. <laughs> Proverbs 30, verse 40, verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? Well, now we could quite say that's a legitimate question. You can understand that coming from a man who's pondered these things in Old Testament times. But you see what he adds? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Why should that be slipped in there? Is it just an accident? Or just an embellishment? Or is it just a little flashlight of a most glorious fact? That right at the beginning of creation, long before the birth of Bethlehem, here's the sun. And through the sun, the whole purpose, from the very laying of foundations of the earth to the handing up of the kingdom to the Father is all vested in one person, the Son of God. As though God will not use any other means but his Son. And we shall find, as we go through, that sonship is stressed from beginning to end. But what about the other end of the story? We've looked at the thought of laying the foundation at the beginning. We'll have to look at that again in a moment. But let's look at the other end. When the millennium is all over, when the great white, white throne judgment is finished, when the new heaven and the new earth have come, he goes on to say that right at the very end of the story, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, to verse 28. Let's read these magnificent words. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then cometh the end, when he should have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he should have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him to put all things under him, that God may be all in all. At the very end of the ages, when the purpose of God is completed, it is carried to its glorious issue by a son, willingly subject. Don't forget, the son is willingly subject. You see the glimpse of it in Genesis 22? Isaac was not a child. Isaac was a grown man. And he couldn't have easily resisted. But they went, both of them, together. Our Saviour said, I lay down my life of myself, 
No man taketh it from me. No wicked hands could crucify him unless he had been willing. The idea of being subject is distasteful to most of us, especially to me. I'm a rebel over these things, but that's because I'm so far off from the glorious pattern that God has given us in his Son. Instead of Christ maintaining his dignity and emphasising his majesty, oh, look at him, oh, look at him, friend. When I think of John, who wrote his gospel, being commissioned by God to select a series of signs that would manifest the glory of his Son. I think, now, what would I have done if God had said to me, now, you know the whole history of Christ. You were with him all the time. You've seen some of the miracles that he wrought. I should have been fishing about among those miracles to have found the most stupendous evidences of divinity and majesty that I could put. But what's the, what's the fact of the case? What's the first miracle that John picks out? Saving the face of a little country village wedding. That's all. Talking about pictures, I remember seeing a picture, I think it was by Tintoretto, of the turning of the water into wine at the Cana of Galilee, and they got pillars in this house, the same as the mansion house, and great tapestries of silk. But that's altogether an artist's imagination. Cana was a little tiny country village, and just to save the face of the bride and bridegroom, that the guests should have the cup of blessing and wish them Godspeed, he just did that little miracle. Oh, friends, it isn't the greatness of Christ that we want to think of so much as his utter, utter humility and what he might have said and might have done if he only chose. When they went forward in the Garden of Gethsemane to take him, they suddenly fell backwards. They couldn't have touched him if he hadn't yielded to them. And then when you get the last of these eight parables, uh, miracles in John's Gospel. Here is the risen Christ, standing on the banks of the sea and saying, have you had any breakfast yet? And they said, no Lord. But he says, come, I've got it ready for you. That's the Son of God. And then if you want the very middle of the story, Jesus, knowing that he came from God and went to God, rises from the supper, takes a towel, girds himself, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. That's the lowliest piece of service that could ever be rendered in an eastern home. That's the glory of the Son of God. No parading of greatness. His condescension, the Old Testament says. His condescension. His gentleness, as our version puts it. His coming down has made me great. So it's a son in perfect harmony with a father. And if the father says, my son, I will provide the lamb, you don't know where it's coming from, you go both together. Abraham's heart was wrung, but Abraham was entering into the heart of the living God. A faint echo of what it cost God who spared not his beloved son. Notice how he speaks to Abraham. 
take thy son, but that's not all. Thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. So that's what God did when he sent his son. He followed that same line. When you're reading 1 Corinthians 15, those verses, if you like, to go from the beginning of the passage to the end that we read, read it like this. Then cometh the end that God may be all in all. That's the end in view. Then it says, when, 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 then. God's purpose is that one day he will be all in all to his people. And that meant redemption and sacrifice and suffering beyond our understanding. And they went, both of them together, they were in it from beginning, in all the types and the shadows. They were in it then at the offering on Calvary itself. They're in it together now with the Christ at the right hand. They're in it until that day when the Son yields the kingdom to the Father and God is all in all. So I think we're justified in saying that the scripture teaches that the sonship element is there in the beginning and the sonship element is there at the very last syllable of recorded time. Well, now we'll move a little bit nearer. At the very self-same time, when we have the beginnings, the foundations of the earth being laid, you get the statement that verily Christ was set forth in the mind of God, a lamb without blemish, before the foundation of the world. So before ever this world came into existence, it was known that it was going to cost the lifeblood of the Son of God to bring that purpose through. If you now raise the question, why? And is not God Almighty? That's an issue we cannot deal with now. But I do ask you to remember, never make light, never make light of the activity of the evil one and the terrific power that's in the possession of one who is the power of sin and death. It's easy for people to make fun of the prince of the power of the air. But the Michael the archangel didn't do so. And when the son of God himself was tempted by the devil, he didn't do so. And God himself has given us an exhibition in the book that it's no theatricals with him, that it's a fight to the finish, cost what it may. And we are in the midst of it. And we are a part of the cause. Well now let's come a little bit nearer, shall we? to this story. When God would send, or first of all, I think we'll just take the other reference to the Son of God in connection with uh, creation and go back to the book of Job. And the uh, 38th chapter. The book of Job, of course, comes just immediately before the book of Psalms. You uh, know about the story of Job, how in the first chapter, the sons of God, with Satan among them, enter into the presence of God and discuss certain things to do with this world and its affairs. The sons of God. 
And here we have in the 38th chapter, Job is now addressed by God himself. Up till now, the three friends have endeavoured to solve Job's problem, but failed. Elihu has cast some light upon it, and steps back. And now the Lord himself speaks to Job and says this. Verse 3, Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Two things I want to mention here. First of all, the angels are called sons of God. There is the Son of God, preeminently. But the angels are called sons of God. So you see, God is still working upon the one line that spiritual powers, spiritual ministers, those who are his servants in glory, are sons, sons of God. The next is this. What is your answer to his question to Job? He says, where was thou when I laid the foundation to the earth? Well, what would your answer be? Well, you say, Lord, I must confess I wasn't there. Right. Well, you see, you get some people who know all about it, but they weren't there any more than Job was. And he asked the question, Who hath laid it? Who put it there? What do you say to me? Do you know the answer? Say, yes, I do. I wasn't there, but he's told me. Should we find the book which tells us? Hebrews chapter 1. The epistle of the Hebrews chapter 1. In verse 8. Contrasting him with angels. But unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated equity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. Well, surely you, you don't need any explanation to know that in the beginning refers to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This passage says, in the beginning, he laid the foundations of the earth. Well, who did? See, we're asking the question, God asked the question, who laid them? The New Testament says, someone here who is called Lord. And the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. And if you're not sure about whom he's speaking, look at the last chapter, the 13th chapter. Verse 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. He's come back to the point. Thou art the same in chapter 1. He is the same in chapter 13. And it's the Son of God that laid the foundations of the earth. If you search the, Old, search the New Testament through from beginning to end, 
you'll never find one passage that says that the Father created heaven and earth. Oh, I know the creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But my creed says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. All things were made by Him. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The one that we know as the Son of God in the beginning, called this, God was before there was a creation. You wouldn't expect me to know, would you? Because I can't imagine where anybody can be where there's nothing, can you? God never asks us to do a thing like that. He says, now look, you've got a big enough problem if you start with Genesis 1 and you'll go on to 1 Corinthians 15. And if you want to know what took place before that and afterwards, I think you're wasting your time. We've got as much as we can do to get to a little idea of the wonder of this book. But so far as the limits of the Bible are concerned, the Lord Jesus Christ is the creator of the Old Testament. He's the one Lord of the New Testament. You tell me there's one Lord in the Old Testament who differs from one Lord in the New? All the way through the Old Testament there's one Lord. And when you come to the New Testament that title is given to him that we know as the Son. The Son of God is the centre of this purpose. The invisible God in the background, we never know. We cannot conceive him. He doesn't ask us to. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, a living person. That's the way he teaches, that's the way he saves, that's the way he's going to lead until travelling days are done. So we've got now an emphasis upon that fact. Now if I take Luke the third chapter and see the genealogy of Christ trace the white bit right the way down we get to the last verse it says which was the son of Seth which was the son of Adam which was the son of God so the angels are sons of God and there if that genealogy refers to Adam Adam is a son of God I was speaking to one of our friends before the meeting dealing with other things and I said have you noticed or do you know that there's a, at least, I think, a dozen passages in the New Testament where the word blasphemy is used about one man against another. Most of us think blasphemy is directed only to God. But it occurs at least a dozen times where a man blasphemes somebody else, but it isn't translated so. I don't know whether they were afraid to translate it, but look, if you can blaspheme a man... It shows you how near that man is to God's heart. He's putting there in the likeness of his maker. So here we have a man put on the earth and he was given the dignity, the son of God. Well, then we move up the story. We come to the one chosen people, the people of Israel. Halfway through Genesis, Adam gives place to Abraham. The first half of Genesis is the race. The second half of Genesis is the nation. Adam the father of the race, Abraham the father of the people. What is God going to call that people? Well, the day came when he sent Moses into the presence of Pharaoh and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go. But he called him a name. And if you look in the book of Exodus, as I think we will to get the exact wording, you'll see that once more, sonship is stressed. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. 
Exodus 4.22 And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. So a nation was now given that same dignity. Now you may remember without turning to the passage in Romans the ninth chapter, when Paul was bemoaning the attitude of his own people and sad to see their departure, he said, All my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. To them pertain the adoption. The very first thing he says of Israel is that to them was given the dignity of being the firstborn sons. The adoption. Adoption is a term of dignity in the scriptures. It doesn't mean some poor little waif and stray that's been adopted by somebody. It means to be put into the dignity and position of a firstborn by will. But that's another subject, but you can test it out if you pursue it. To them pertaineth the adoption, place to sons. So you see, there's angels who are sons of God. There's Adam who is a son of God. There's the people of Israel and their dignity is a son of God. They're all foreshadowing the one great purpose of God. To focus attention upon this question of sonship and the son preeminent Christ himself. When you come to the New Testament, you come to a period that is brought to an end by heaven opening and a voice speaking. The rabbis have commented that for nearly 300 years heaven had been silenced. The bus call, the voice from heaven had not been heard. What broke the silence? What caused heaven to open? Well, a little before that, even the angels in glory couldn't help themselves. There's the birth of Bethlehem. And suddenly there was a mighty host singing glory to God in the highest. Why? Because the son of the highest had now come into human flesh and blood. They could not be restrained. And there they burst into their song. Glory to God in the highest. And then, 30 years pass. 30 most wondrous years. And then the Son of God stands there. At the waters of baptism. And the heaven opened. And the words from heaven are, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then the second half of Matthew comes. The line drawn in Matthew is at 16th chapter. And it ends with a confession by Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately after that, the apostles are taken up into the mountain of transfiguration. The heaven opens again and it's repeated all over again. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And at the other end of the book, balancing Peter, the high priest says, I adjure thee by the living God, whether thou tell us whether thou be the Son of God or not. Oh, yes. That was the insistent thought all the way through. He was born the Son of God. He lived as a Son of God. He died as a Son of God. And he was manifested to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. Son of God all the way through. If I say it enough times, we'll all begin to believe it, won't we? Then you think of the things that are associated with him as the Son of God. That simple one verse in the first epistle of John. Simple because of its 
use in the English language of words that are not longer than four letters. Fancy that. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. By the time a person has got to be able to read that marvellous revelation, the cat sat on the mat, is almost ready to read that most stupendous revelation, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Will you turn to the first chapter of the Epistle to the Romans? There's not much connection in my method, I'll admit. It's just sorting out some material. The first two or three verses. Romans, the first chapter. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Then he stops himself and speaks as it were in brackets. Uh, by the way, this gospel of God is not something new. It was promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right from the beginning, it was foreshadowed that this gospel must be preached and this Son of God must come. So now we're going to slip past verse 2. We'll read it, but we won't say it. We'll go right on. Separated unto the gospel of God concerning his Son. That's the gospel of God. You see, it isn't, the gospel of God isn't my forgiveness and my justification and my peace and my hope of glory. That's the consequences of the gospel of God. The gospel of God is concerning his son. There's no other gospel. All the other statements that men can make are just so many wonderful tantalizing words without the son of God. It's no good talking about the forgiveness of sins. It's no good talking about having peace with God. It's no good stressing everlasting life. There's no such thing for anybody apart from the Son of God. The Gospel of God is concerning His Son. Next time He speaks about the Gospel, He says so. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the Gospel of His Son. There it is. When we move from that to the 8th chapter, we find the 8th chapter of, of Romans is practically dominated by this emphasis upon sonship. Most of you know that in these mighty epistles as well as elsewhere in scripture, there is an underlying structure which is so useful to discover. I wonder whether you can keep in your mind's eye uh, these subdivisions. I'll write them in the air, as it were, and then you'll say, yes, I'll keep that in my mind. So I'm going to put the letter A up the top here. That's the first member. And this is verses 1 to 4. Now see where the word son comes in this section. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now what's all that about for? What the law could not do. In that it was weak through the flesh. God, here's God's answer. What the law couldn't do. And you're done now, you've got no means of salvation. That's all petered out and failed. God sending his own son. Then he goes on in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. When it says there's no condemnation for you, friends, it doesn't mean that condemnation hasn't fallen. There's our story of Jonah again, repeated. Condemnation has fallen, friends, but on that sacred head instead of yours. No condemnation to us, but he condemns sin in the flesh of the Son of God. His own Son, well, now let's come to the other end of the story and we'll call that letter A again. So we've got the one up there. Now we'll have the one down here and this is verses 31 to 39. Now we've got to the summing up. We're supposed to have read right through chapter 8. What do we then say to these things? It's a good thing to stop and think sometimes, isn't it, after you've read this list of blessings. What do we then say to them? The Old Testament says, I will take the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Well, you can do your own method, but it'll all be along the same line. Here it is. What do we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be, who can possibly be against us? Then immediately attention is focused upon the Son. And the Son as a sacrifice still like it was in the beginning. He that spared not his own son. See, first section was his own son. Last section, his own son. But delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? So the first section is no condemnation. For the condemnation is exhausted in that son that was given. Last section is Well, what are we going to do about it? What can we say to it? Condemnation is past. And the answer is his son. Now, we'll come back on our steps and take letter B. This is verses 5 to 15. And uh, I think we should have to bypass a tremendous lot of the words and look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So we've got now the Spirit of God emphasized in connection with this. And so it says in verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption. Now the word adoption, here, is the word sonship. You've been given the sonship spirit in which we cry, Abba, my Father. You can't get away from it, can you? We don't want to, but there it is. Sonship all the time. So it says, we are sons now in verse 14. Now that is echoed by verses 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, we also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. You've only got to say the word predestination to some people to start a terrible to-do. 
But who's going to object to the fact that God has predestinated that every one of his redeemed children should be conformed to the blessed image of Christ? Oh, isn't this something we want? Isn't it something we desire? Is that robbing you of any freedom of will? Is that intruding upon your personality? One day, we are going to wake up satisfied. And you know why? As the psalmist said, As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. So here it is. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we are sons now, being led by the Spirit of God. We shall be conformed to the image of his Son in a greater reality when all this frailty and all this circumstance that so hinders and bothers us has once and forever been removed. Now we come back on our tracks to the 17th, uh, to 15 the 17 once more. What? Uh, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit itself, bearing witness that we are the children of God. Now, if you'll glance at verses 22 to 28, you'll see that this is repeated from another point of view. 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. But not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit. You see, in the other passage, it was the Spirit of adoption. So we've got the Spirit of adoption now, but we've not got the reality yet that's coming. Here it is. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to it. What's that? The redemption of our body. God's not going to forget that, you see. Your whole body, spirit, soul and body, was the prayer of the Apostle for the Thessalonians, be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say, well, what about all spiritual blessings in heavenly places? 1 Corinthians 15 says, don't forget there is a spiritual body as well as there's a natural body. And God giveth to every seed a body as it has pleased him to fit the sphere of its blessings. Of course, we don't know what we shall be. We don't know what we're going to look like. It's no good trying to argue as to whether you'll have two feet or two eyes or anything. We don't know. But we're going to be perfectly happy and perfectly fitted for the glorious position that God has destined for his redeemed children. But one thing is an anchor. will be like his son. Whether in the high glory or whether on the renewed earth, we shall be like his son in whatever capacity he has placed us. So now we're coming to the very centre. We've got the word adoption on either side. And then we have in verse 17 uh, these words. And if children, then heirs. That's a thought to be remembered. There's no child of God that will be without an inheritance. Of course, many children today well, they may inherit a bad name, or they may inherit any amount of trouble, and they may inherit money which does them good or does them harm. But in this case, 
if children, then heirs, heirs of God. So that's blessed, isn't it? Then there's a bit extra, friends. And joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That's controversial because I've altered the punctuation. But we need it. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if children. So you see, you cannot really understand Romans the 8th chapter and bypass the emphasis upon sons, children, adoption, crying of our Father all the way through. And then the glorious end up. No condemnation and no separation. Well now a few words before my time is completed. Most of you friends uh, will observe there are lamps at the back of the chapel. And that lamp is telling me that my time is drawing short. So, uh, the next few minutes, I'll have to give you one or two items and leave it. Will you come with me now to Matthew, the 11th chapter, and verse 27. Matthew, the 11th chapter, and verse 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Following the language here, it's a greater mystery to contemplate the Son of God than it is to contemplate the Father. The Father is made known to us by the Son. But who makes known the Son to us? No man knoweth the Son, but the Father. That's where it stops. So let us not be too glib in our explanations about the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy says, Confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I don't know how that came about. The scripture says so. We better leave it. And thank God for it, with all its marvellous consequences. I move on then, because of time, to chapter 22. Remembering this statement. Chapter 22. Now our Saviour was often surrounded by those who did their utmost to entangle him in his speech, as we are told in verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his speech, in his talk. And I'm always on my guard when I receive a letter, or somebody comes up and wrings my hand and looks so lovingly at me, and he says something like this. Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. I say, oh, come on, what is it you're going to say? All this subtle approach, but of course they were dealing with one who knew them. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Would you say that's a straightforward question? Oh, no. If Christ had said, oh, yes, it's right to give tribute to Caesar. They turn and say, 
And he calls himself the Messiah of Israel and he says, give tribute to a Roman pagan. Or if he said, oh no, we mustn't give him tribute. Pilate, he's telling the people not to give tribute. Oh, that was the reason, you see. And Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why tempt ye me, hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. He said unto them, whose is this image and superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. And said he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they heard those words, they marveled and left him. But then the Sadducees had a, a go. And they brought up about the, the woman who had seven husbands, and what was going to happen in the resurrection, what a hullabaloo that would have been. But he disposes them again. Then another one comes. And he says, wait, wait a minute. Now, he says, there's three of you. Ask me questions to tempt me. I'm going to ask you a question. And what will that question be? Well, if I'm on the right track, he's going to put them right there with regard to their attitude to the Son of God. You listen. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? But they say unto him, The son of David. He said unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make on any of his thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is his son? That was a puzzler, wasn't it? Because whatever they did, they'd have to admit something they didn't intend to do. No man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. It is perhaps the test of all tests to be made to stand up before men and answer the question, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? There's one more word, and that is in Hebrews 1, and I should think my time will have just run out completely. I must get to this. Do you know in one sense the last days are all over? Of course, we use the word the last day with regard to prophetic events, the rise of the man of sin, the overthrow of Babylon, the second coming of Christ. But listen to these words. Hebrews 1, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So the last days are over, so far as God speaking is concerned. There's no more revelation been given, friends. If you don't accept the book, and you don't accept this one who has spoken, it's a silence of death to you and to me. The last days are over, so far as any revelation is concerned. Hath in these last days, that's 1900 years ago, spoken unto us in his Son. Then the next thing I want to get in is this, although most of you know it. You'll notice the word his in this verse is printed in sloping letters which we call italics. And that means that it slipped into the English translation because you couldn't say in English, has spoken unto us by son. Oh, that's uncouth, isn't it? But the actual words are deeper still. And the Hebrew wouldn't need to have any interpretation. God has spoken to us in son. 
Because in the Old Testament, we read a passage that says, and God spoke in Jehovah. And God spoke in God Almighty. And now he has spoken in Son. It's the one God who has manifested himself as Jehovah, as El Shaddai, as the Son. You see, all this is that this is something beyond our understanding and ability to explain. But here it is. And it goes on to say, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And then the challenge goes out, under which of the angels said he, at any time thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Don't think that any slip up here. He said to the angels, thou art my son. But he never said to a single angel, this day have I begotten thee. Christ is the only begotten son because that stoops down to the manger and the birth through a woman. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. The man, Christ Jesus. But what a man. Or may our attitude be like that outstanding disbeliever who did such a good deed for us, disbelieving Thomas. When at long last he went into the presence of the risen Christ. He didn't do what he said he would do. He didn't argue as he said he would. He fell down before him and he looked up to that face and he said, My Lord and my God, this is the Son of God. As I said at the beginning, it would be an inadequate presentation I should give you. We've roamed from the beginning when the foundation of the earth was put to the last day of time when this son shall hand a kingdom to the father that the purpose of the ages may be attained. And all the way through like links in the chain that son of God comes we could have turned to the prophet Isaiah unto us a child is born but don't forget unto us a son is given and his name shall be the mighty God Emmanuel God with us. That's the son of God. Oh may the Lord give us grace that wherever we are, and whatever message we have to give, whether we are dealing with prophetic events, whether we are arguing about dispensational truth, whether we are in the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles, or the Revelation, Genesis, or anywhere else, I don't think we shall be wrong if like that poor character in one of Dickens, who couldn't write a story because King Charles's head would always come in it, we shall not be wrong in the sight of our God if we never stand up before men and somewhere in that story we discover the Son of God comes with all his illuminating, gracious, merciful power. May I commend to you then the two messages of this day. The one this afternoon with its stresses upon the Word of God and its focus on the risen Christ. And then the suggestion given this evening that the Son of God Fills the Bible from Genesis 1 to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the last word of Revelation, although there's a bit more in the Bible afterwards. May the Lord grant that as long as he permits this testimony to last, in this chapel or anywhere else, that the dominant words should not be dispensational truth or right division, but they shall be the results of dispensational truth and right division, are putting the risen Christ in his most glorious and essential place.
That must be the last word we have in this meeting this evening before we come to a close. But I trust it will be remembered and adhered to until the day comes when we see him and are like him. And then we shall know a little bit better now than we, then than we do now what it meant for God so to love as not to spare his own son on our account.